Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm chatting with Sharon McMahon, who is the mastermind behind the Instagram account, Sharon Says So, where she tackles tough government questions with nonpartisan facts. She has over a decade of experience in government and law education and is passionate about teaching others to recognize bias and empower them to feel less overwhelmed and more informed along the way. She also teaches live workshops online called Government for Grownups. In today's episode, I will be talking to Sharon about the history of abortion in the United States, specific case rulings such as Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, as well as certain implications if Roe versus Wade is, quote, overturned, and many other topics on this. This is a way for us to become educated from a legal standpoint, and I personally learned a lot throughout this interview. I also wanted to mention that Sharon does have a awesome download on her website, and it's all about abortion in the United States, and it's, again, from a legal standpoint. Um, where she talks about the specific facts regarding Supreme Court rulings and state and federal laws. And she starts with Roe versus Wade, and it works its way all the way through the present day. Again, this is not advocating for any certain position. She is just discussing facts. So that is a great resource. It is $12.99, and it's available. I will link it up into the show notes if you're interested on learning more after listening today. One thing to keep in mind is that this episode will air on Wednesday, but it was in fact recorded this past Friday. So we do refer to the Women's Health Protection Act, which will be taking place this week. You'll hear me say, you know, next week, but it's actually this week. Just to kind of keep that in mind, it was recorded a few days ago. Here we go. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, Sharon, good morning. Thank you again for hopping on here. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk today about, you know, I wanted to talk with you about, you know, the history of abortion in the United States, just to kind of lay that out for those that might not be aware. And really this entire podcast episode today, I just, I want it to be informational. I want people to feel educated about what is going on in the United States and how 
you can, you know, talk with other people about the history of everything and kind of what's going down. So myself included, I, I am very confused <laughs> and mm. I think I'm going to learn a lot today when it comes to, you know, specific laws and the way, you know, our courts are set up and, and how everything works and just talking about specific cases and how some of these theoretical things can impact us if, you know, some of these things do come to fruition. So if you don't mind starting us off with just the history of abortion in the United States, like all the way back to like the 16, 1700s and what the thought was back then, and then kind of what led us up into like the late 1800s, 1900s, where things starting to change. Sure. So this is a common, you know, perhaps misconception that many people have, which is that abortion was something that only happened in back alleys until, you know, it was very rare until 1973 when Roe versus Wade was passed. And then suddenly it became mm. a very mainstream and everyone was doing it. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the feeling that some people might have. But Abortion has been around since the dawn of human civilization. It's not new. And it certainly was very present and common in colonial America, in Revolutionary War America. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, who wrote, you know, Poor Richard's Almanac mm -hmm. for decades, had a recipe in Poor Richard's Almanac for herbs that people could take and things they could do. And what they, you know, what the article talked about was, here's what to do if your, quote unquote, monthly courses are delayed. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. where it was like, oh, uh, that is, you might be pregnant. Take these herbs. Because of course, they didn't have a way of knowing early if on. pregnant, yeah. Right. Um, and then at the end, he had like a little wink, wink of like, and maybe stay away from the handsome lads. <laughs> You know what I mean? So it was yeah. clear that was what he was giving this advice for. So the idea that abortion has always been reprehensible until the 1970s is not borne out in fact. Obviously, there was much more mystery about pregnancy sure. prior to the modern era than mm -hmm. there is now when we have all kinds of imaging, et cetera. But anyway, all that to say, it was very common, but still unsafe and also potentially very traumatic, mm -hmm. given that there's that not things like studied therapeutic doses. And, you know, there were just a lot of variables in how safe things were for people, but yet it was still something that was very commonly done. So in the mid-1800s, there began to be this sort of societal shift um, during a time when people were beginning to increasingly mail things to one another. And things like railroads were beginning to connect the entire country. And it became much more expeditious to send things in the mail. If you mm. think about like the Wells Fargo wagons and, you know, mail cars on trains where you could just ship a package to somebody. Sure. So there begin to be more advertisements in things like women's magazines for thinly veiled references to contraception. Mm. And obviously contraception was different in the 1800s than it is now. And often that contraception involved certain types of herbs, et cetera, to prevent a pregnancy from continuing or prevent it from sticking, so to speak. And also during this same era, things like pornography 
became much more prevalent on the sort of the men's side of things to Mm. send in the mail, like Mm -hmm. saucy pictures. Mm -hmm. So there began to be laws passed about indecency and what was acceptable to send through the mail. And so there began to be this, they were called Comstock laws based on the man who was sort of the pioneer of this movement. And the idea was that you cannot send things like information about contraceptives, information or, or picture, saucy pictures of ladies, because that is indecent and obscenity. In fact, it's obscenity. So that, Again, we were beginning to move into the Victorian age where things like societal beliefs began to change about what was appropriate to talk about and do. And so that's when you begin to see states one by one begin to criminalize sending things through the mail, criminalize obscenity, and regulate things like abortion. Mm, Okay. So can you explain to us? Now, there's two cases that I think, and people may have not even heard of the other case I'm going to mention, um, but I think it would be good to t- define both of these and what they mean. So obviously Roe versus Wade, which you know I, I think everybody has heard of, and then Casey versus Planned Parenthood, if you don't mind touching on both of those. Mm-hmm. Sure. So Roe versus Wade, interestingly enough, the case was heard in front of the Supreme Court. Most people know the story that it was a woman whose whose name was actually Norma McCorvey. Mm -hmm. She went by the pseudonym Jane Roe. She was pregnant with her third baby and wanted to seek an abortion in Texas where it was illegal. Ultimately, the case, you know, took a very long time to Mm -hmm. work its way through the courts. She ended up giving birth and placing that baby for adoption. But nevertheless, she continued as one of the plaintiffs in this case. So, When the case was initially heard, they heard oral arguments for it, and then they had new members of the Supreme Court added. People Mm. left, and they decided to rehear the oral arguments of Roe versus Wade. They wanted to rehear it because it was such a consequential Mm -hmm. case. So they reheard it, and this is another thing that many people don't know, is that the outcome of Roe versus Wade was actually leaked prior to the case decision being revealed. So they did not leak the full opinion like they did with Mm. uh, this case, Dobbs v. Jackson, but... The outcome of the case was leaked to a Time Magazine reporter, and it ran on the cover of Time Magazine before the opinion was released. So Roe versus Wade established a number of things. One is that a woman has a certain right to privacy under the Constitution. And early in her pregnancy, during the first trimester, the government does not have a sufficiently compelling interest in invading her privacy that it has the right or ability to restrict access to abortion. Mm -hmm. And then in the second trimester, the government's interest in preserving or protecting uh, the fetus increases somewhat. And so abortion might be permissible under certain circumstances in the second trimester. And then in the third trimester, the government's increase interest increases dramatically mm. and it becomes 
very, very difficult to obtain an abortion. So Roe versus Wade established this trimester system. Okay. And that was the basis under which um, a lot of the United States existed for 20-ish years. So again, it was predicated upon a woman's right to privacy balanced against the government's interest in protecting fetal life. And if you can think of like, you know, a set of balance scales that as the pregnancy progresses, the government's interest increases. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. early on, the government's interest is low. So this was a, a very, very, very consequential decision. Clearly, it was mostly decided by people who were appointed by Republican presidents. And one of the reasons that that is surprising to people now is because Uh, The pro-life movement was not established until well after Roe versus Wade. The modern pro-life movement was not. In fact, multiple very prominent Christian groups like the Southern Baptist Convention openly said at their yearly conferences that life begins at first breath. And that is uh, really the, the view of Judaism as well, that life begins at first breath, Mm -hmm. and that prior to that, the fetus is part of the mother. So that began to change in the late 1970s, early 1980s. That is when the the modern pro-life movement really got started, but it was not an immediate response to Roe versus Wade. There was a somewhat of a delay and some other motivations behind that. So Then moving into Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was another very landmark case about abortion that did really kind of two things. One is it upheld the idea that a woman does have the right to make private medical decisions. So it upheld the final result of Roe versus Wade. But the second thing it did was did away with this whole government compelling interest trimester system. So that was sort of the the law of the land for 20-ish years. And then the whole trimester system, the Supreme Court was like, this does not make logical sense. And it instituted a separate test to determine if restrictions on abortion were permissible. And the separate test that they they devised in Casey was what they call the undue burden test. Does a restriction on abortion, they agreed, states can have some restrictions on abortion. It's not just a free for all. Mm -hmm. They can regulate who can provide abortions, under what circumstances. We can't just, can't be anarchy. So states can regulate abortion, but whether or not a, a restriction is constitutional is determined on this undue burden test. Does the restriction place an undue burden, which means like a large obstacle, mm-hmm. too large of an obstacle in the path of the woman seeking an abortion? So some examples of that are they had to determine When states passed rules like you have to have a 24-hour waiting period, you have to have a mandatory Mm. ultrasound, Mm -hmm. you have to notify your husband, you know, those types of rules, they went through those rules one by one and determined whether or not they placed an undue burden on somebody seeking an abortion. And they determined things like a mandatory waiting period, 
not an undue burden. A mandatory ultrasound, not an undue burden. But they did determine that telling your husband Mm. was an undue burden because there could be domestic violence, et cetera. So that is that undue burden test is what the United States has been operating under since the 1990s. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any other like landmark cases with regards to abortion uh, besides those two that are, that are, you know, really important or. A lot of the other landmark cases are tangentially related. They are more things about birth control. Mm -hmm. So do women have the right to uh, obtain birth control without their husband's permission? Mm -hmm. Do unmarried couples have the right to obtain birth control? There's a case called uh, Griswold versus Connecticut that has to do with that. And so those are related because they also deal with similar issues of women's privacy when it comes to medical decisions. And there are other cases about abortion, but those are really two of the very biggest, Casey yeah. and Roe. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now I, now this is where I get a little bit confused. So, you know, I think a lot of the language that people do use is, oh, you know, they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade and essentially just do away with it. But that's not necessarily the right language. Is that correct? Yeah, if you think about somebody who's committing a who committed a crime and they are going to appeal their case and mm-hmm. a judge is going to rehear or reexamine their case and then they overturn a conviction for that person. That's really what overturning means. You know, if right. you think about like Bill Cosby convicted, put in prison and then a judge overturned his conviction and let him out. So We do use the word overturn Roe versus Wade, but it's not quite as precise because the Supreme Court doesn't reopen Roe versus Wade. It does not hear the same case again. Mm -hmm. A new case has to be brought before the Supreme Court. Maybe they deal with some of the same issues, but this is a new case. This is so. This is the Dobbs versus Jackson. Is that this is Dobbs versus Jackson? It's a new case. Yes. Okay. And so that's the case. That's like kind of going against Roe versus Wade. That's right. The precedents established in Roe and Casey, it is essentially abandoning or overturning the precedent, the legal precedent that was set in those cases, but it's not a reopening of the same case. Right. So essentially if, if Dobbs versus Jackson were to go through, it kind of, does it like essentially replace Roe versus Wade? That's right. Am I thinking of that correctly? That's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So can you just explain a little bit um, for those that are listening, might not even know what we're talking about with the Dobbs versus Jackson? Sure. So this is a case, first of all, the Supreme Court receives about 7,000 requests per year to hear cases. And they almost all the cases they hear are appeals from lower courts. Very, very infrequently do they hear original cases. So they hear about, they receive about 7,000 requests and they agree to hear approximately 100 of those 7,000 cases. So this is one of the approximately 100 cases that they agreed to hear this term. And it has to do with a Mississippi law that bans abortion past the 15-week gestation point and Mm -hmm. whether or not that violates the undue burden test, whether or not that 15-week mark is violating that 
test of where whether something is constitutional or not. So these are sort of one of the reasons that these cases have been interesting to the court. Of course, because the court decides what they want to hear, mm-hmm. they have to be interested in a topic. They're not particularly interested in constitutional questions about you know, plants. You know what I mean? Like they, they, they want to hear cases of consequence and topics that they're interested in. So obviously medical science has advanced dramatically over the last 50 years, almost 50 years. And what was true about pregnancy neonatology in 1973 is no longer what's true today. We know far more and can do far more. And so there is this sort of advancing field of what is viability? Mm-hmm. What is what does viability mean? And that the needle of what is a viable pregnancy or vi- the viability of a, a fetus living outside its mother changes frequently. So anyway, that's what the, the basis of this case is asking whether or not a 15-week ban on abortion violates the constitution. That's the, that was the question. So I'm trying to understand. So if this Dobbs versus Jackson, if this were to go through and they accept this, how does that change, you know, everything going forward compared to what we were living with before? Like what are the repercussions if this were to come to fruition? And when is this being heard? Like, when is this all going down? Like what's the timeline and such? Sure. Sure. So this obviously, as you know, is a draft opinion. It's not the final opinion of the court. It is possible that the final opinion of the court could change. It's also likely that the language that you saw in the Mm -hmm. draft opinion will change at least somewhat. If you just think about writing a paper in college, your first draft is not your last draft. Mm -hmm. So they, they generally iterate multiple times. So if this ultimately, even though they're going to iterate on the language, if the final votes remain as they appear, they will, then we would expect the Supreme Court to officially release their opinion sometime at the end of June, beginning of July. And that is when the order would begin. So there is that sort of you know, we're looking ahead. The Supreme Court term will end at the beginning of July. So it won't be later than that. Okay. So then essentially what this opinion, this draft opinion says is that abortion is between voters and their representatives. It is not something that courts are meant to decide. Mm. It is something voters and their representatives decide uh, in conjunction with one another. And so what that will do is it will return the power of regulating abortion back to the individual states. And every state will be allowed to decide for itself what kind of restrictions it wants to have. Some states will absolutely take very significant measures to ban it or reduce it. And other states will strengthen the their access to it by enshrining it in the constitution or by mm-hmm. passing laws that favor abortion providers. So you will see a large disparity between mm-hmm. individual states if this is the final opinion of the court. Okay. Now, this leaked draft, just to kind of touch on this a bit, 
so, you know, you, you see this name everywhere, Alito, Alito, who is Samuel Alito? Hmm. He has been on the court for quite a while. He is a conservative justice on the Supreme Court, and he is a, he's a member of the Federalist Society, which is a, again, a conservative judicial organization. He is um, a very open Catholic. In fact, most of the Supreme Court right now is Catholic. Mm. And so that is, that is um, interesting and of note that most mm-hmm. of the court is Catholic. There's only a couple people that are not. And so undoubtedly, those we're all products of our upbringings. We're all product products of our environment, our you know uh, family of origin, our religious faith, and even as much as we would like to separate ourselves from uh, from that and be like, I don't care about any of those things. I'm only making a decision based on law. Nobody can deny that those things impact or influence how we view the world. So he has a very uh, conservative, and by conservative, I do not mean Republican necessarily. Judicial conservatism is different than Mm. just political conservatism. Judicial conservatism is sort of this idea that the judicial branch is not here to create rights where the legislature has not given them. So he's mm-hmm. saying there is no, there's nothing in the constitution that says abortion. And so consequently, the right to an abortion is not a constitutional right. So that's what I mean by judicial conservatism is it's a very, a very strict interpretation of the text of the constitution itself. So why is it that he was the only one that wrote the the leaked draft? And, you know, does he speak for everyone within that draft. From what I understand, I guess some of them can kind of write this like rebuttal if they wanted to or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. But like what how is that, you know, how how was it that he was the one that was was able to write the draft? Okay, so there is always one person who writes the opinion of the court and then other people can sign on to the opinion of the court. But that but it is normal for one person to write the court's opinion. So how he came to write it I'll just go through the process of how they choose these things. After the Supreme Court hears oral arguments in a case, they then a few days later have a conference meeting and everybody in on the court gets a turn to speak without being interrupted and they go in order of seniority. And then when they all have a turn to speak, then they go down the line and vote in order mm-hmm. of seniority. They see who's in the majority, who's in the minority, and then the most senior member of the court in the majority assigns somebody to write the opinion. So in this case, Clarence Thomas is the most senior justice in the majority, and he assigned Alito to write the opinion. So he chose. Uh, And certainly we would assume that somebody could advocate for themselves. Certainly it might be possible for somebody to be like, well, I'd really like to do it. But that is the official method of how it is determined who will write it. So then somebody can write what's called a concurring opinion, which is where I agree with your final outcome, but I don't agree for the same Mm. reasons. I agree for different reasons. They can do that if they want to. And then people can write what's called a dissenting opinion, where they Mm. completely disagree with the opinion of the majority. And usually one person is assigned to write the dissenting opinion, but people, multiple people can write their own dissents if they want to as well. 
so I understand, obviously, this is leaked. Like, we weren't supposed to see this. That's but right. Mm-hmm. Will we be able – so say there are these other opinions that are written. Are we – will we, the people, like, see all of those? Or mm-hmm. – okay. Once they yes. are – okay. And and what's the timeline for that? Like, once that starts – you know, I mean, obviously, we would have been seeing this leaked draft, like, in the coming weeks, I would imagine, right? Because you said, you know, June – The court will issue one document when they are done with their uh, their writing. They issue one document, and in the document is the opinion of the court, plus all of the concurring opinions, if there are any, plus all of the dissents. Those are all in there. And the people generally sign their name to, you know, where they are. I, I am with the majority I'm with the a concurring opinion. There's not always concurring opinions. Or I'm with the dissenters. Sometimes opinions are unanimous and there aren't dissents, but most opinions are not, you know, nine to zero. Mm-hmm. So yes, that all is public and that all is released at one time as part of one document. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are not in this leaked draft. We don't see any dissents right. or any concurring opinions in this draft. And the leaking of this draft is pretty wild, no? I mean, I don't mm-hmm. – I, I there hasn't ever been – has there ever been a situation similar to this where, like, all of a sudden no. you're seeing this, this mm-hmm. you know, this opinion of the court? No. And, and just for, you know, like, shits and giggles here, what do you think the motivation, you know, both from, you know, like, a Democrat viewpoint and then a Republican viewpoint would be the motivation to, like, leak this draft? Like, what mm. – like, you know what I mean? Like, why mm-hmm. would I on – a significant Democrat side, like, why would I want this to be leaked? And then same thing for, you know, if I'm a Republican, what would be my motivation to leak this? Sure. So speculating, of course, but these are, you know, sort of widely agreed upon in legal circles. If it is somebody on the left who leaked this opinion, likely one of the motivations is that they wanted to give Congress more time before the summer recess and before the midterm elections to pass a law codifying Roe versus Wade and, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. They wanted oh. to give them more time to to put that into federal law because the Congress goes on summer recess where they are off for many mm. weeks. And then, of course, coming back in September after Labor Day, they are hitting the ground very, very hard, Mm -hmm. leaning into the midterm elections, because literally every single member of the House of Representatives is running for re-election. They run for re-election every other year. So that time period between September and November is extremely busy for every single member of the House. So if it is somebody on the left, that could be one of the reasons, is they wanted to give Congress more time to pass a law codifying the right to an abortion. What does it mean to codify? It means to pass a law, and then that law becomes part of the U.S. code. And mm-hmm. US, the U.S. code is just the set of laws that govern the United States. Mm-hmm. So to codify something means to add it to the code books, to make a law about it. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. So if you're on the right then, likely, or what likely could be a reason if it was somebody on the right who was leaking it, is there could be one possibly two justices most like the most likely uh the most likely scenario would be uh Brett Kavanaugh potentially Neil Gorsuch but I would lean more towards Brett Kavanaugh who potentially took a look at this opinion by Alito 
and was like, I don't know if I can sign on to this, even though I might agree on principle um, that it's fine for this Mississippi law to move forward, that a 15-week restriction is acceptable, even though I might agree with that. I can't sign on to this opinion that completely uh, eliminates the federal right to abortion. Mm. And so I am going to go over here uh, with John Roberts, who is the chief justice of the court, and we're going to make a middle way. We're going to find some, we're going to write some other kind of opinion, concurring mm. opinion that upholds the Mississippi law, but doesn't completely overturn Roe. So the potential there is by leaking this draft that any person who was thinking of quote unquote defecting from the majority and thus not overturning Roe, that they might feel pressured to stay in the majority. Mm -hmm. They might feel pressured to not leave the majority and join up with John Roberts. So it could potentially be a way to uh, sort of force those five justices into, you know, lock them in, essentially lock them into this opinion. Okay. So now what is happening next week? Right. Isn't aren't they hearing something next week and voting on some like didn't the right say, hey, we want, you know, the Senate to vote on what is going on next week? Mm, mm. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah. I'm still a little bit confused as to like, you know, what the point of it is. I mean, I, I guess it would be to call out what your, you know, your opinion would be laid out on the table for everybody to see. Right. But it seems that, you know, we are we already know what the outcome would would be. So are you are you talking about uh, Congress passing uh, talking about passing a bill about abortion? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like I had, you know, they were hoping to like what you said, like codify. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Chuck Schumer, who is the Senate Majority Leader, it is his job to bring things to the floor of the Senate for votes, and the obviously most of the Democrats or all of the Democrats in the Senate along with perhaps a couple of Republicans who are pro-choice, would like to see there be some kind of law protecting the right to an abortion. So they are going to bring to the, or at least attempt to bring to the floor, mm. a, a a bill that would do just what I mentioned, which is codify the right to an abortion in federal law. But it's going to be a symbolic gesture. It's not going to actually uh, even be voted on because mm -hmm. of the filibuster in the Senate that yeah, requires. So, okay. That's, I guess, too, <laughs> the filibuster mm -hmm. gets me. If you mm -hmm. don't mind kind of touching on that too, like what the heck is it and what does it mean in this particular situation? Sure. I won't go into the full uh, 250 plus year history of the filibuster, no, 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 but don't. here's here's the here's the net effect. <laughs> yeah. The net effect is that 60 senators have to agree to vote on something for it to even be brought to the floor to okay. vote on it. Okay. So because of that, because it requires this 60 vote threshold to even introduce it for voting. That means that every single Democrat plus 10 Republicans would need, because there are 50 Democrats in the Senate, mm. that would need to agree. Okay. And they just don't have those numbers. Okay. They don't have 10 Republicans ready to agree. So it is possible that the Democrats could use what is called the nuclear option and eliminate the filibuster because mm. the filibuster is just a rule of the Senate. It is not of the constitution. Right. They don't, they don't have to have mm -hmm. it. 
But two Democratic senators do not want to eliminate the filibuster, even in this case. Mm. So it's not the bottom line is it is a symbolic gesture. It is a way for Democrats to put it out there that we're trying to protect the right to an abortion. And it is a way to force Republicans to go on the record as saying, I will not vote on this. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I understood of it. Okay. This podcast episode is brought to you by EveryPlate. I don't know about you, but once the hustle and bustle of the season starts, I love having opportunities that save me time, energy, and money. EveryPlate will make your days easier by having the dinner plans already taken care of. Save time at the grocery store and less time prepping with their already pre-portioned ingredients. Did you know that EveryPlate costs 50% less than your average takeout dinner? They also introduced $1 steak for life. You can add a 10-ounce ranch steak to your weekly order for only $1. Their affordability is what sets EveryPlate apart. One of my favorite things about EveryPlate is that they offset 100% of their delivery emissions, and their meals have a 31% lower carbon footprint on average than supermarket meals of the same portion. Plus, nearly all packaging materials are curbside recyclable in most areas in the U.S. This week, we ate honey sriracha fried chicken with mashed sweet potatoes and zucchini, and it was delicious. Prep time was a quick 10 minutes, and the recipe was on the table within 45 minutes total. You can get started with every plate for just $1.49 per meal, plus $1 steaks for life, by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49Lindsay. That's $1.49 per meal plus $1 stakes for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering the code 49Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. Your subscription must be active to qualify to redeem your $1 stake. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I gave AG1 a try because I was striving for better gut health and hoping that along with my current exercise routine, it would give me a good energy boost. AG1 is a quick and easy way to get science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients on a daily basis. AG1 has the NSF certification. This certification was created for professional athletes and is the gold standard for clean ingredient nutrition. The certification process is exhaustive and involves testing and verification of each ingredient and every finished batch of AG1. If you want to check out the full ingredient list, you can head over to their website for more details. Perhaps my favorite part about AG1 is how they evolve with science. They cross-reference decades of established research with new clinical studies and biotechnology to bring you the best formulation possible. They already have 52 iterations of AG1 to this day, and they will always strive to be better. I drink AG1 in the morning after my workout with added protein. It's a great way to start the day and gives my body what it needs for fuel. Personally, I love AG1 for the gut optimization. As a busy mama of four, I don't always have time to concentrate on getting everything I need nutritionally for great gut health, and this helps me stay balanced. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Lindsay, that's L-Y-N-Z-Y, for your free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs. That's drinkag1.com slash Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y. I wanted to bring up 
the the Fourteenth Amendment and how it protects, you know, the fundamental right to privacy, and how can this be upheld to protect a woman's right to choose, like at a state level? Or I guess I'm confused, you know, because with the Fourteenth Amendment, you have this right to privacy, and then I would, you know, assume you would also have this this right to choose because you have your fundamental right to privacy. Does the Fourteenth Amendment have any? like say in any of this when it comes down to a state level or no? Okay. So the right to privacy is not expressly granted in the constitution. The constitution does not say you have a right to privacy. It is inferred Mm. from a reading of the text. And the right to privacy is actually constructed by the Supreme Court out of a number of different amendments to the constitution. For example, the fourth amendment protects you against unreasonable search and seizure. The police can't just show up at your house and be like, hi, Mm -hmm. we're here to look around. And so they, they use that to infer that a person has a, a right to privacy from government intrusion in their own home. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they yeah. they pull they pull uh, different inferences from a variety of sources in the Constitution, including the Fourteenth Amendment, which gives people the people are not allowed to deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process or equal protection. So that's one of the amendments that is related to the right to privacy. So the Supreme Court, in this draft opinion, if this is the final opinion of the court, has said that the 14th Amendment does not confer a right to privacy when it comes to abortion. So it does not apply federally, and so Mm -hmm. consequently, it does not apply Mm -hmm. at the state level. Mm -hmm. Now, states all have their own constitutions, and so a state could write it into their own constitution. They could put in their state constitutions are far easier to amend than the federal constitution. Mm -hmm. They could expressly say women have the right to medical privacy or abortion is uh, permissible under the following circumstances. But the 14th Amendment has a, is essentially off the table as a cover for why people might have the right to an abortion at the federal level and then consequently at the state level. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So this, this new uh, Louisiana bill, the uh, HB 813, that bill in particular, I know that there are some that are concerned about what that bill could mean as far as its impact on ectopic pregnancies, miscarriages, and IVF. And I mean, obviously not just in Louisiana, but of course, you know, bills that could be passed through other states as well. What does that mean for, and I guess also we should talk about, you know, why is IVF on the table for any of this? I I don't Mm. think that people quite understand like, okay, well it's abortion, but why IVF? I mean, we're trying to create life. So Mm -hmm, I think that can be mm -hmm. confusing. And obviously we're just, you know, speculating and kind of looking forward if any of these do go through, but what, how could that impact, you know, other things like miscarriages and IVF and, and things like that? Sure. Yes. So this is where lawmakers at the state level are going to need to be very, very careful and judicious with their language. Regardless of somebody's opinion on the right to an abortion, even if they're very, very strongly pro-life, I think there is some potential uh, pitfalls in some of the bills that have been introduced. For mm-hmm. example, there was one introduced in Missouri yeah. that specifically forbade a doctor from terminating an ectopic pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that was removed from the draft after other 
physicians who serve in the Missouri state legislature said, you clearly have no understanding Mm -hmm. of what an ectopic pregnancy is. And consequently, you have no business writing laws about it. It's never viable. It is life-threatening to the mother very quickly. There is no, this idea, multiple states have introduced bills that require an ectopic pregnancy to then to be removed and re-implanted in the uterus, which is not medically possible. Yeah. And, yes, um, and a 30-second Google search would turn up that information. Right. You know what I mean? So again, that's not, you can be the most pro-life person, but that's just a f- medical fact. Right. It does not, it does not, it's not medically possible. So then in terms of IVF, this is, again, speaks to this notion that legislatures need to be quite careful when it comes to their language. The, the bill that was advanced out of a committee in Louisiana makes abortion a homicide crime. And so that would mean that a woman who sought an abortion could be prosecuted for murder as well as other people who assist in that. And that bill specifically says that full constitutional rights are conferred to all unborn children from the moment of fertilization. So it doesn't say conception. It says fertilization. Mm -hmm. And so that word fertilization is, you know, in the context of IVF, Mm. fertilization is happening outside the mother's body. Right. And some people find themselves in a situation when going through IVF where they have embryos that need to be discarded. An embryo is PGT tested and Mm -hmm. found to have very significant chromosomal abnormalities. Generally speaking, that embryo is discarded. Medical ethics would not permit them to implant that embryo. They will, even if you have, I'm not going to go into the whole thing about IVF, but even a mosaic embryo, which has some normal and some abnormal cells, they can test which, which cells are abnormal. Some mosaic embryos are medically uh, able to be implanted and some are not. There is medical ethics prohibit them from being implanted. Mm-hmm. So those embryos from a medical ethics standpoint have to be discarded. And so that potentially, if you're talking about discarding, destroying embry- fertilized embryos and making that a homicide crime, that could extend to IVF practitioners or parents who are seeking IVF. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not, I don't think this is going to be the law of the land in every state. I'm not saying that like, oh my goodness, IVF is going to be illegal tomorrow. What I am saying is that states need to be quite careful about how they yeah. word these things so that people who are just trying to treat their medical condition of infertility are not prosecuted for homicide. Right. Yes. Right. So- as a medical professional, I <laughs> i mean, quite literally, absolutely terrifying. I don't think I've ever been so happy to live where I live because I can't imagine, you know, going into this field of work, first of all, being in the emergency room and seeing what I see and having the um, ability to really get close with a lot of my patients who what they have to go through on a daily basis. And we see a lot of domestic violence and we see, anyways, what I'm saying is, you know, it's, it would be very hard as a medical professional to be in one of these states where you do see all of these things. And then 
say this state puts into place this extreme ban on abortion, what does it mean as a medical professional for, say, a woman? Let's just theoretically say Mm -hmm. a -hmm. woman comes to the emergency department severely battered, you know, by her partner Mm -hmm. and is pregnant and is absolutely in a desperate situation. You know, recently found out she was pregnant very early along and is asking for help with regards to getting an abortion or said person also, you know, miscarrying, say she has retained products, right? Which, which Mm -hmm. basically it's, that is, can be very, very dangerous. You know, it can lead to Mm -hmm. sepsis. And of course that actually happened with a woman named Savita, Halapinar, I believe is how you say her last mm-hmm, name. That mm-hmm. was the case in Ireland where this woman, she was a dentist. She was of uh, Indian descent and she was pregnant. She went to the hospital miscarrying and, you know, they told, she did not have, they, they struck down her right to an abortion, even though she was miscarrying and she died of sepsis. Mm-hmm. So as a medical professional, and of course this can be interpreted many different ways, but we do take a vow to do no harm, right? So mm-hmm, we have this mm-hmm. patient in front of us that is clearly being harmed in you know whatever way it might be, and we choose to either help this woman, you know, who's currently miscarrying, she needs a DNC or what have you, or this woman who you know is severely battered and say she's you know, saying to us, you know, if I don't abort this baby, he will kill me or, you know, this person will kill me or, or, you know, whatever her stance may be. Right. So just trying to kind of paint two scenarios. What happens as a medical professional, if we help that person in a state where it's banned, Mm -hmm. will we, can we be, can we be prosecuted? And also how is that possible when we have HIPAA, where it's Mm. these protection laws to privacy as a patient, I, I guess I'm confused from that standpoint. I guess I can understand it if uh, someone reports it, somebody that's like friends with them or something that says, hey, I know that she had an abortion, but how would they ever know since mm-hmm. the HIPAA, HIPAA protects that person? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. So in the scenario that somebody comes in is extremely battered um, and wants help terminating an early pregnancy, depending on the state you live in, the rules would vary widely. It could be that, you know, that could be taken care of very expeditiously. In fact, it could be that the ER uh, sends her home with the medications needed for a medication abortion, or they get her an appointment at a clinic. It could be you know, as simple as that. In other states where it's completely banned, uh, you know, most of them have a, a heartbeat ban. If a heartbeat is detectable, there's nothing that, you know, like it, if it is, if it's illegal, it's illegal past that point. It is possible in some states, depending on how laws are constructed, for a physician or a PA or, you know, whatever, any type of medical provider to potentially get in legal trouble for facilitating an abortion, for assisting. The, the word is assisting in somebody receiving an abortion. It does, and that does not necessarily mean that you have to actually medically assist. It could mean assisting as in giving somebody resources on how mm. to leave the state. Mm. So in some states, the enforcement mechanism, like Texas, the enforcement mechanism is one person suing another person for money. 
That's the that's the enforcement mechanisms. So say this person, her friend is like attempts to sue the provider because mm-hmm. they know that that I don't know, they they, they work with them or gone. whatever. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yes. But but it is true that HIPAA would prevent like in the case of Texas it's not like me, just Sharon McMahon, can call up a hospital and be like, hello, I would like to know everything you did right. to, Lin- to Lindsay. Right. Give me the info. Right. So you do need to have some kind of firsthand knowledge of the situation. And how would they do that if they weren't present? I, you know what I mean? I don't know. I guess right. it gets really sticky, right? Because It does. Yeah. It okay. does. Because it's a civil lawsuit, though- the burden of proof is a preponderance of the evidence. It's only like 51% of the evidence says it happened. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's in cases like the states of Idaho and Texas that have those kind of enforcement mechanisms. Other states, if this goes through, if this is the final opinion of the court, I should Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. other states will criminalize it. And it will not be a civil enforcement mechanism. And so consequently, medical providers could potentially be prosecuted. Mm. Now, again, how would law enforcement know? That is one of the questions. How would law enforcement know? Right. Especially in, in regards to HIPAA. Well, HIPAA does not protect privacy when it comes to crimes, does not protect, like, let's say uh, a child comes into the emergency department severely abused. It doesn't, that those, those medical details can be used in an effort to protect somebody who is legal, has legal protections over them, like a child or like a vulnerable adult. So it is possible that states could criminalize providers providing resources or performing procedures in a way that might allow you know them to more readily obtain the information. But I do think it is the purpose of a law criminalizing it is less about emergency departments and and hospitals and more about the private clinics. It's more about the clinics that are easier to target. They, they exist for one reason. They are there to provide those kind of services. That's more of the purpose of those or the, the I should say, the object of, the, of those types of laws is aimed at clinics and okay. less at emergency departments. Yeah, because I mean, you, I mean, you know, we get asked all the time, like, say we have a patient that comes in and law enforcement is there and they'll ask me questions, you know, with regards to whatever might have been going on with the patient. But I cannot give them, I mean, that's a violation. You can't give that unless they have a court order. They need a court order. So that's they, right. Okay. So, you know, I mean, this case would need to be they need to bring to the hospital a court order saying we need, you know, that's right. And they can only give that specific information. So this would have to be like, okay, patient did have an abortion or, or did have, you know, miscarriage. We performed this procedure. They would need a court order in order to get that specific information. Yes. Yes. This is not just going to be police officers knocking on the door of hospitals being like, Give us the details about Lindsay or else. Yeah. Not like yeah. that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in a state like Texas, for example, if this did happen, there would need to be, you know, a court order that was that was used to obtain that information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just have a few other like random questions about some things, sure. if you don't mind. So I had heard somewhere along the line, and I'm I'm 
curious to hear what you have to say about this, but five of the justices on the Supreme Court, and I don't even know exactly which ones, it was said that they lied in their confirmation hearings in order to be confirmed because they had mentioned that they respect precedents, but clearly they're not respecting Roe versus Wade, obviously in this like specific example. Mm. Now, do you know anything about that or am I just, you know, kind of just hearing something and it's not actually true? <laughs> so there's three three justices that were recently appointed, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, who have all had recent confirmation hearings, you know, and then of course, Katanji Brown Jackson, who's not on the court yet. She also right. has recent confirmation hearings. She won't be on the court until probably July. The other three who were all appointed in the last several years all have these televised confirmation hearings in which they were specifically asked about Roe versus Wade. Um, and they didn't come right out and say, yeah, I support I support Roe versus Wade. I think women have the right to an abortion. They certainly didn't phrase it in that way. But what they did say was something to the effect of, Roe is an important court precedent, and I respect the prior precedents of the court. So something along those lines is okay. the, the language that they used. So people have been asking me as well, can they get in trouble for perjuring themselves? Are they lying under oath? Yeah. Can they get in trouble? So a confirmation hearing is certainly not a court of law. So it's not the same type of, you know, legal proceeding as lying to a court. Additionally, once somebody is confirmed, the Constitution allows that Supreme Court justice to serve as long as they have good behavior. That is the word that the... What's the definition of that? I feel there there isn't one. The Constitution, (laughs) it says good behavior. And it's really up to Congress to determine what good behavior is, right? So, yeah. I mean, what what mean what good behavior is? The definition of that changes over time. Mm-hmm. So, would somebody be charged with perjury? No, they would not, because it would require Congress to try to impeach them. Right. And the process for impeaching a Supreme Court justice is exactly the same as impeaching a president. president. Mm-hmm. And there is no political will to, uh, you know, outside of some Democrats there, but there's not a significant enough majority of people saying mm. this behavior is so egregious, they must leave the court. That's not a thing that is going to happen. No. mm And there's no external mechanism that does things like, wait a minute, you said one thing and then ruled another. There's no, people want to know if there's like this external body that, that, you know, uh, regulates their behavior. There's not, it's Congress. Yeah. It's Congress. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are trigger laws and you know, how many States have those currently in place that would limit or restrict access to abortion? Hmm. So a trigger law is a law that will go into effect. It's essentially saying, okay, we know right now when this law was passed, we know that abortion is legal nationwide. But if we ever have the opportunity to enforce this law, we will. Right now it's essentially it will only go into effect if we are able to enforce it. And that means like the, the legal conditions in the country change. Mm-hmm. So that's what a trigger law is. It is a, a state that has a law on the books, essentially ready to go for when 
legal conditions change and they're able to begin enforcing it. Mm -hmm. Now, some states have trigger laws that they probably won't enforce. Some states have trigger laws that were passed a while ago, and they now have, let's say, a more more left-leaning governor. And the governor may not direct the executive branch of the state government to enforce that law. That is also a possibility. Probably not a super, super likely possibility given the the states that have trigger laws, but it but it is possible. Like for example, um, Tennessee has a Democratic governor that he they may not enforce okay. a trigger law. Okay. So current currently, thirteen states have trigger laws on the books, and other it, it appears likely that if this is the opinion of the court that around 24 states will um, either ban or significantly restrict mm-hmm. access to abortion mm-hmm. like from the from like a, a heartbeat detection point moving forward interesting okay this does not Lindsay though this is one thing that I wanted to mention that I think is something to um, for especially for medical professionals or people interested in this one frontier that is going to be very, very murky moving forward, again, operating on the assumption that this is the opinion of the court, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is medical abortion pills. Because in 2021, at the end of last year, the FDA removed the requirement that people pick up abortion pills in person. Right. They removed that requirement permanently. They initially put a hold on it during the beginning of the pandemic, and then they made it permanent. So that is going to increase the amount of uh, telemedicine access that some people might have where they can get a prescription over over a telemedicine visit, and then things can be shipped to them. So where, where many states don't have laws is in this front. Okay. They, most of their laws are currently aimed at abortion clinics that provide surgical abortions right. and or abortion clinics that may maybe they provide medical abortion pills, but you know the person is visiting in, in person. So some states do have rules that you have to visit in person that t- some states do have rules banning telemedicine visits. Mm-hmm. But again, it gets very challenging with the advent of the internet. Mm -hmm. If you live in state A and state A has a ban on it, but you can get a telemedicine visit with a provider who's licensed in your state, but doesn't live in your state. And then those things can be shipped to you via UPS. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, the other avenue that I think is going to, that is yet to be explored is that people will they already can, and they, the access will continue and potentially grow order this combination of of pills for medical abortions, medication abortions from overseas pharmacies on the internet. Mm. And so that presents a unique challenge because if you are ordering something that is posing, let's say, as a Canadian pharmacy, and it seems extremely legitimate, but in reality, it is just like a black market. You don't know what they're sending you. There's no oversight that could potentially open up some new legal frontiers that people are not currently thinking of the access Mm. to medication, abortion pills via the internet. So, and I I can't remember what state it was. Wasn't there a state who had, they made it illegal for a woman to travel out of state to obtain an abortion. Hmm. And can you do that? 
can you make mm. it illegal for a, a person who lives in your state? Can you make it illegal for them to travel to another state to have this procedure done where it is legal? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And that is in Missouri, which has pretty restrictive abortion laws. And there are a number of abortion clinics that are set up just across state lines in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And those Illinois clinics cater to Missouri residents. So, you know, they are they're not nearly as restrictive as the clinics in Missouri are. So what Missouri is seeking to do is, first of all, no, states cannot ban interstate travel. Yeah, no, that is the jurisdiction of the federal government. No state can be like, you must remain in the state borders unless you're under like surveillance for a crime or something right, along right, those right, lines, right. you know? Um, no, they cannot prevent you from traveling. But what Missouri was see is seeking to do is make it permissible for one citizen to sue other people who might assist somebody leaving the state to seek an abortion. So let's say you, you, Lindsay, drive a friend, you drive your friend Susan from Missouri to Illinois, and mm. Susan's mom finds out about it, and she is mad at you. Theoretically, Susan's mom could sue you for money under this scenario because you assisted her and you're a Missouri resident. They can't prevent you from leaving the state, but they are attempting to create the system under which residents can sue people who assist others in so leaving the state the for an abortion. It's not the person actually obtaining the abortion. That's right. That's right. Okay. So if you drive yourself, totally fine. Like no theoretically. one's in trouble theoretically. Theoretically. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's the deal with the period trapping, tracking apps? I'm mm. not even on social media and I've heard about this now, like in, in a couple different like uh, news pieces where it's like, sure. everybody delete your period tracking app. This can be used to prosecute women who obtain abortions. Delete it now. You don't want that to be, I mean, obviously we know like when it comes to iPhones, there is no protection there. I mean, all that information doesn't belong to us, mm -hmm. but do you agree with that? Like, as far as like, if, if you don't want your information out there, should we be deleting mm. those, those apps? Mm. Well, I mean, it is true that apps track your data. It is true. And the whole point of a tracking app like that is to keep track of those cycle days. And then theoretically, that app would know if you're pregnant. Right. Right? Right. So theoretically, that app would be like, hold up. Wait What's happening? <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. And then theoretically, if that data is sold to somebody, that data could then be accessed. Again, this is theoretical. Right. And I mean, data you don't know if that data is going to be sold. I mean, that's not. That's right. Right. You, that's right. You, yeah. By using the app, you're agreeing that your data can be used. That's right. Yeah. But it also, you know, your phone data and your search histories also can be tracked and sold. Mm -hmm. So it is, you know, like if you're searching for abortion clinics near me, that could be just as damaging as again tracking, yeah. that's right mm -hmm. but again do i think it is likely that that there are going to be court orders to like search your internet browsing history there would need to be some kind of very 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 egregious circumstances for that to happen there is no law enforcement agency in the united states that has has the ability right there there's somewhere between 600 and 800,000 or more abortions performed in the United States every year. 
Right. Like this is going to get like really, that's, I think with all of this, I mean, as we know from a historical perspective, even like banning abortion doesn't stop abortion. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, if we wanted to stop abortion, I mean, not stop abortion, but if we wanted to decrease, I'm on this boat where I, I wish too, that we could decrease abortions. I think that would, that would happen if we were to introduce more sex education, right. And give people more resources. And once the baby's born and, and giving that that mother, you know, the ability to still work and childcare and what have you, a million things we could go on and on. Right. But sure. I just feel like, you know, in certain States, like, isn't this going to overwhelm them completely? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, I just feel like how could they possibly keep up with like, all? yeah, I don't, I don't believe they have the resources to keep up with everything. They absolutely it's like they don't have the resources to catch every speeder. Right. We don't, and we all frankly don't want to live in a police state in which every person is caught for every crime. Frankly, we don't want to live that way because we don't want to have every single movement uh, monitored. Right. So we, we have to be comfortable with a certain amount of, this is just a sociological thing, mm-hmm. to be comfortable with a certain amount of people getting away with things Mm-hmm. Because we don't want to live in a in a police state. I mean, even in prison, people get away with stuff, right? Right? You know, right. you know what I mean. People get away right. with stuff in prison, so that shows the level of supervision you would have to have, like solitary confinement, for the police to be able to catch every person who does something. But I will say that Google reported forty thousand subpoenas for internet data in the first six months of twenty twenty one. So it's not an it's not a zero risk. Forty thousand subpoenas for data in one six month period. So it's not a zero risk, uh, but it's a risk you have to weigh and determine if if you want to assume that risk. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But then it's also like, how do you like? I don't know. What if you went to a friend's house? And, you know, said friend is using the bathroom and you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look this up here. Like, how can I get an abortion? And you're Mm -hmm. not even using your own internet Mm -hmm. IP Mm -hmm. address. And then, you know, what happens if like that person, I don't know, you know, there's just like a million different ways this could go down. There are. You're not even the actual person that did the research that you you didn't even, you can just say, I didn't, I would, I didn't do it. Someone stole my phone. Or whatever. There's there are many, many, many very complicated legal ramifications that have to be uh, sorted out. Yeah, and this is not this is absolutely going to be a topic that will continue to be in the news for years. Yeah, um, this is not going to be like well, click you know, snap your fingers, mm-hmm. it's all figured out now. There are so many, you know. For example, Congress and the Supreme Court, not particularly good at keeping up with technology. Mm -hmm. They don't move quickly enough to keep up with technology. In many cases, Congress is like a decade behind Mm -hmm. what is actually happening like on the Internet. Yeah. So there is always going to be some degree of even if it is very, very banned in your state, some people are going to do it anyway. They're Mm -hmm. going and some people are going to get caught and some people are not. Mm-hmm. Okay. One last question. The Women's Health Protection Act. Mm-hmm. I just heard about, like, what is that? That is the bill that we were talking about a few moments ago that is being introduced in front of Congress okay. that is really a symbolic act to codify the right to um, an abortion. And again, they don't have the votes to bring it to the floor. 
uh, for a vote. And so consequently, that's why I say it's symbolic. They're not actually going to vote on passing it or not. Right. Okay. Okay. I think that's, that's all I have for you. I don't know if you have anything that you wanted to kind of clarify or mention um, as far as like what we talked about. We talked about a lot. We I did. Think that is, we did. We covered a lot of ground. So I yeah. feel I feel like this should hopefully answer many of people's burning questions. I know one of the questions I have gotten frequently is, is this going to you know criminally prosecute people who are having a DNC? Yeah. And one of the things that is confusing for lay people is that a on medical documents uh like a spontaneous miscarriage is classified as abortion right. on medical documents right and so people are like am i my document when i had a dnc said i had an abortion and i didn't have an abortion i want you know i wanted to be pregnant i was devastated and they felt like they felt you know even sort of upset sure. seeing that on their medical record sure. I would argue that medicine needs to change the terminology. Yeah. That yeah. there needs to be a distinction between a spontaneous miscarriage yeah. and a voluntary abortion. Well, yeah, we call, I mean, in the ED, I mean, I, I do this every, you know, every time I work, I mean, missed abortion, incomplete abortion, complete abortion. I mean, that is the language. That is yes. the language that is used. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so consequently, some people are concerned, is this, are we criminalizing seeking care, care for a miscarriage now? Because the law says abortion and my chart said abortion, even though I wasn't intentionally seeking abortion. Right. And so I do want to just sort of clarify for people that generally speaking, unless a state really goes off the rails, this is not going to uh, criminalize somebody who has an ectopic pregnancy or cause you to you know, go to jail for getting a DNC for an incomplete miscarriage. Right. Even though that is what, even though your medical records might say abortion. Right. It's not the same thing. They're mm-hmm. talking about the actual definition in this context from a legal context it's is different. a voluntary termination. Mm-hmm. That's different than these medical scenarios that you're describing, Lindsay. So is there is there a possibility though, dependent on you know, the language of certain states that it could criminalize miscarriage? I feel like that would be such a crazy, I mean, but mm. is it possible, I guess, would be the question. It, it could be possible if you had lawmakers who were very uninformed, um, mm. about, like the one that I mentioned where they were trying to criminalize uh, terminating uh, topic, topic yeah. pregnancy. Yeah. So it's theoretically possible, but I do know that there are enough people with eyeballs on this scenario now that hopefully the, that would be caught before anything like that would be passed. Okay. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I really do think we need a better medical terminology. Yeah. No, I know. Yes. And I think yeah. the other concern too, you know, besides miscarriage would be people getting nervous that they might criminalize birth control. Do you mm-hmm. think that that is in any way a possibility or do you think that we've... <laughs> hopefully gotten Mm. past that or what? Well, the only thing that I can see in terms of criminalizing birth control is if you look at the, like Louisiana, where they are talking about anything that anyone that is ending what they refer to, um, you know, from the point of fertilization. fertilization. Mm -hmm. And so some forms of birth control, like say a copper IUD, suppress the ability to get pregnant but in some cases, they also prevent 
implantation. Mm-hmm. That's really the only thing that I can see on my horizon. Okay. Is something that they would say doesn't prevent fertilization, but it prevents implantation. Right. So basically they they could criminalize something that's preventing fertilization, but they couldn't criminalize like certain birth control, basically. But it's potential. Okay. But I, I don't see that as a like I don't see a high motivation mm-hmm. for that mm-hmm. to happen. Just to kind of clarify, because, you know, you see all those fear-mongering headlines where it's like, they want to, you know, criminalize birth. Con- I just want to, you know, kind of clarify, like, yeah. how how could this actually happen and what is the what is the potential for this happening? And, mm-hmm. and, yeah. I think it's a very, very low potential that birth control will be illegal. Extremely low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's it. I, again, thank you so much for oh, yes. being here and explaining everything to us. It was incredibly informative and I'm so grateful that you were able to take the time today, Sharon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.